Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Kerr here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos. Uh, welcome to the show. This podcast is an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. We have with us today somebody from the great state of Colorado, Chris Malliard who interestingly enough, uh, we have never bumped into each other or crossed paths. We know many of the same people. Uh, I spent uh, about eight years in Colorado as uh, an emergency manager at, a, uh, at an, uh, an energy and water utility and participated in state activities like state conferences and stuff like that. In fact, I, I lectured at a couple of them. And, uh, and Chris is going to t- tell you about his background which is a, a bit extensive and currently in the in the healthcare arena. Chris, welcome to the show. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, I've uh, been doing various types of emergency management, emergency preparedness response for about three decades now. Started off as a firefighter and paramedic, uh, originally from Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, was a firefighter paramedic for Miller Fire and Rescue out there. Uh, moved out to Colorado in 1998 and uh, with a paramedic, uh, firefighter with uh, Franktown Fire, and then uh, ended up with West Metro Fire out in Lakewood, Colorado. Let me get my geography right. That's just east of Castle Rock. Correct. Yep. Got it. Look at me. Yep. Neat little area down there. Uh, yep. uh, a lot of uh, a lot of sick patients down there because uh, it's still that old school mentality of I'm not calling anybody for help until my arm's falling off. Well, that so. part of the state's also got some remote agricultural. Yeah, uh, that that's not even suburban. That that's rural. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Castlewood Canyons down there. Do a lot of rescues down there. So right. uh, yeah, interesting area. But yeah, I ended up with West Metro Fire out in Lakewood. And oh, very uh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, great department out there. They do a lot of good stuff. Uh, ended up becoming a tactical paramedic with the uh, Lakewood SWAT team as well. Uh, learned a lot of fun stuff with those guys. Uh, after that, ended up hurting myself one too many times. I uh, really couldn't do the job anymore. Uh, so I became a teacher. I uh, was a teacher for Jefferson County Public Schools for four years. I taught career tech ed, uh, taught fire science, EMS, and emergency management, actually, to high school students. It uh, it was actually a pretty, uh, a pretty fun class. Um, I've got to kind of meet and carry on, even with my students in this career I have now. I've seen some of them and had some of them come and help me and work for me and, and do some other stuff. Um, had, um, you know, we just had a bad one September 11th of last year. One of my students uh, was an Arvada police officer. Uh, Dylan Vakoff was shot and killed 
uh, on uh, September 11th up in Arvada. And, uh, you know, he was in my emergency management class and he ended up having a uh, bachelor's degree in emergency management um, and was actually looking to go towards that route. So this was a high school student that had grown into adulthood, became a police officer and yes. was shot and killed in the line? Yes. Uh, condolences. Very sorry to hear that. Yeah, great kid. Uh, great guy. And uh, um, yeah, good cop. Um, but what, what, uh, what's uh, what department? Uh, with Arvada Police Department. Okay. Um, and uh, so after my uh, four years of teaching, I went back out, out into the field and uh, been doing emergency management work for hospitals ever since. So that was 2014 up until today. I know a lot of hospital emergency managers, um, mostly from the from the New York area, large institutions. Uh, you know, I I'm of the mindset that since 9-11 in particular, just about all of the sectors and subsectors have uh, created some form of emergency management now. A whole other podcast, which you would understand this, especially from all the LinkedIn chatter, is just what do we call ourselves? So, you know, we have uh, risk managers, resilience ma managers, business continuity managers, crisis managers, emergency managers. And a group of us get together once a month to talk about stuff. And this came up recently. And uh, once we dig deep into what we actually do, we're, we all do the same thing. So we're, we're called uh, something different. So um, I'm curious as to um, what you're going to talk about, especially from a hospital-based perspective. The point being that hospitals being so critical as, as, as critical infrastructure, that um, the need for an emergency management program. So in Colorado Springs, we had uh, two major hospital networks, and each of them had uh, emergency managers. So that would have been... Uh, the University of Colorado Health and uh, the St. Francis Hospital Network. Ventura, yeah. Uh, Ventura, right, right, right. Right. And, uh, you know, in fact, one of them was uh, the level one, the only level one trauma center for the for the for Southern Colorado, even though we're South Central Colorado. So, yeah, so I get that. Uh, I guess a point I'm making is that many hospitals don't have emergency managers. So uh, I, and I think that's probably to their detriment. So um, if we can frame the the incident you're going to talk about and, and how important it is to have emergency management at the hospital setting and why that is, I think that'd be really helpful. It's all yours. Yeah. So every, and it's, it's the emergency management world in healthcare has definitely progressed a great deal. Um, one thing I didn't mention about my past was uh, I was an emergency planning analyst for the Department of Homeland Security, actually, let me take one step back. Department of Health and Human Services. 9/11 um, occurs, and Homeland Security is created. They moved all the medical assets into uh, Homeland Security. Then Katrina happens, and how that all fell apart. They so fell you're talking about NDMS? Yes. Because, because yep. I mean, I go back to the NDMS program when it was run by a guy named Tom Rudersham. And that was early, early. That's a long time ago. Yeah. That's early. I mean, he's, <laughs> I'm not sure if he was a founder, but w I was working with uh, New Jersey, New York state to put together casualty reception and uh, 
emergency civilian repatriation plans for the Gulf War in 1990. And yeah. we had Newark Airport set as casualty reception for the military and a repatriation, a, a, a fairly robust program to repatriate Americans at, at Kennedy Airport. So yeah, and, and NDMS was at the core of that. Yeah, NDMS. I mean, that was the original purpose of NDMS during the Cold War was to bring, you know, you have NDMS participating hospitals and they agree to take military casualties from the Cold War when obviously that was going on. Maybe we're creeping into another one, but they would take military casualties from a Cold War from the Cold War and put them in civilian hospitals. That was the original purpose of NDMS and never happened. So they morphed and, you know, adapted their mission to just pure disaster response. The NDMS, it sounds like, is definitely moving back to looking at some of those missions, those original ideas of, of the repatriation and um, how they uh, uh, can support the military, kind of like their original um, original ideas were. So, uh, so yeah, it, uh, it was an interesting time. But uh, in 2008, uh, during the Democratic National Convention here in Denver, um, I was part of the Fire Life Safety and Health Subcommittee, uh, focusing on hazmat, WMD stuff. But hospitals in the area needed help, and they never, there was not enough EM work to have a full FTE for it. And the safety officers generally didn't have a strong enough EM background. So um, my buddy and boss, uh, Phil Currents, he basically started contracting with several Centura hospitals in the metro area to provide that EM work on a contract basis, basically a couple days a week. So that's how we kind of got started into that idea. And it uh, then kind of grew and grew as, you know, Joint Commission, the accreditation agency required more and more stuff. CMS, Center for Medicare Medicaid, now requires stuff. NFPA uh, 99, uh, Health, uh, the Life Safety Code for Hospitals requires emergency management stuff. So it's a requirement in hospitals, the struggle is how you talk about framing it. it it's not something that hospitals want to necessarily, they, they want to do it. They understand the importance, but there's a, a thing in healthcare. If it costs money and doesn't make money, it's a struggle. I got that. So if you would, because I think it would be of interest to people to know what regulations, uh, let's assume there are hospital emergency managers or hospital executives listening. What do you want them to know from the regulations? There's the JCO standards, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals. Did you yeah. mention an NFPA standard? Yeah, so you got NFPA 99, which is um, a healthcare specific code. Um, I mean, everything kind of defaults to 101, the life safety code, but 99 is a very specific healthcare code. And chapter 12 of NFPA is an emergency management chapter. Now, states can choose to adopt chapter 12 of NFPA 99. State of Colorado has adopted NFPA 99 uh, chapter 12. So we can be, so at any point in time, well, not really any point, but Joint Commission can survey us. CMS can survey us and the NFPA, the state fire marshal guys, they can come in and survey a hospital as well for emergency management. Okay. Uh, NFPA 1660, does that apply? That's the new merger of a number of standards that was, yeah. we would call 1600. Yeah, I know. Yeah. They, the, I, I just was looking at uh, 1660 a little bit. It doesn't necessarily apply in a, in a hardcore kind of scope. You know, we can take some of those concepts and ideas from 1660 and apply them, but we don't have to necessarily completely comply with uh, that code. 
Okay. And is there a CMS Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services standard that you can cite for the for the folks? Yeah, it's basically 482. Um, I want to say 42.15 uh, is the majority of stuff in there, but uh, CMS 4, 482. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank and then, you. And of course, all your OSHA stuff, 29 CFR, um, all of the, you got EPA stuff in there, 40 CFR. So you've got a lot of all those things still kind of apply. Most of those fall into the safety world. But when we talk about like decon, you know, we still fall under 1910-134 respiratory protection to protect our people if we have to do decon. And is 1910-120 still valid for yep. hazmat ops? Yeah, so Hazwopper is still there. We Has have Whopper. the best practices for hospital first receiver document, which is basically a giant interpretation letter. Um, and that obviously still applies as well. Okay. Um, I, I think it was worth getting wonky for a minute because <laughs> um, I believe that there are certain, and I, I don't mean this to be derogatory. I believe there are certain industries that just require a little bit of a push. And yes. if there are some people that hear um, that there are some regulations and some requirements and it helps them move a program along, I'm happy to help them understand what that is. So that, so thank you for that. Okay. Um, so a, there must be a specific incident because uh, you reached out to me, and I'm very grateful for that, by the way, because I, I do want people uh, to reach out and, and and tell their compelling stories. And and I've I've had some really interesting ones. I recorded uh, uh, an episode before that was a, a com complete one-off about crisis management in the law enforcement sector. Interesting uh, with regard to mass fatality events. Uh, I hadn't considered that. So that, that's good stuff. Cool. What are we going to talk about? So uh, we're going to talk about the Marshall Fire uh, that uh, that occurred in uh, Boulder County, uh, specifically cities of Superior, Louisville, a little bit of Lafayette, um, and just kind of that general area um, in kind of southeastern Boulder County. Um, this was on uh, 30 December of uh, 2021. Okay, so set the stage. The city of Boulder is northwest of Denver by let one see 30 40 miles yeah about that give or take I mean it's you're really you're not you're basically in a metro area the entire time between the two I mean they're they're definitely connected now but yeah uh, well Westminster's in between and and I, I I used to call it the Boulder Denver corridor I don't know if that's a real thing or not but that it, is it, that's highway it, 36 yeah absolutely 36 is a corridor okay that's good so it, it, uh, okay boulder is a uh, the city of boulder is a uh, let's say a university town I th yeah i think, think uh, you'd agree to that boulder there it's it's definitely a lot of college people right and it, it's uh, i mean it's a population center it's yes. not as big as denver but it's 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 uh it's a population center and these other cities are where in in in, in correlation to to boulder uh pretty much south and east of the city itself it's okay. basically kind of the the south southeast corner of boulder county okay got it thanks all yours um so yeah it uh you know that day was an interesting day um so at that point in time so real quick currently my job uh, i'm the manager of safety security and emergency management at presbyterian st luke's hospital and the rocky mountain hospital for children in denver that's my, my position i'm at now uh, during the Marshall Fire, that's was, near the zoo, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Denver Zoo, right yeah. there. PSL, everything kind of right by the zoo in City Park. Yeah, okay, got it. Um, 
so during the Marshall fire, I was the uh, emergency manager for a Vista Adventist Hospital uh, in the city of Louisville, as well as St. Anthony North Hospital in city of Westminster. So covered both those as the emergency manager. And again, looking back at that, you know, what does the emergency manager do for healthcare? Well, I was covering two hospitals, um, which at one point I was covering three hospitals, which gets to be a little difficult to do, especially early in COVID, trying to support three hospitals from an EM role in, in three different counties was a struggle. So it comes back to that idea of, you know, what should we be doing? Well, we should have some dedicated people working on this stuff. Um, so that day for Marshall, uh, windy as heck, um, awful lot of wind. I don't even think we had red flag warnings, though. I, I don't remember why, uh, but I know that was a, a topic of discussion uh, afterwards of why were there no red flag warnings that day. Um, well, did the did the humidity not not meet the criteria? Because you said you had the wind. Yeah, we had the wind and we had the the dry fuels. Uh, but yeah, it probably was the humidity that wasn't the uh, factor. Did uh, do you recall if there was a high wind warning or an advisory? I Between some when I was with the utility, we would monitor those simply because of the overhead. Yeah, exactly. Um, I do remember one of the things that came up afterwards was a lot of the Roth station, the the stations that measure all these things for wildland stuff, especially in Boulder, they're all in the mountains, all in the hills. And, you know, that's where they're pulling the red flag data from. So they were never monitoring anything down on the plains, down in the in the flatland there. So I think that's something they were going to look at changing actually is, you know, because we're seeing these types of events, we need to adjust and expand where we're putting our stations that monitor the weather for this stuff. Got it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a kind of a normal day. Um, I was actually at St. Anthony's North in Westminster. Um, I was splitting my morning between having, we'll just say, some aggressive discussions with some uh, relatively hostile and aggressive patients in the emergency department um, and fit testing people. So that was what my morning was. And um, the, the aggressive remember. patients were unrelated to anything. It was just a normal. It was normal. Yeah, okay, <laughs> all day it. anymore in an ED. Got it. Okay. Um, but uh, the, um, I, got, I was sitting down, I think I had just maybe started lunch actually. And I, I got a text from my facility manager or facility director over to Vista with a picture of smoke. And, you know, I think that picture, it was at a, just before noon, like 1154, 11.55, uh, picture of smoke looking towards the west uh, from a vista. And she said, what do we do? And I'm like, uh, okay, just looking at the picture, trying to figure out a distance. And I said, first thing, if anybody that lives out there is at work, get them home, you know, get them, get people out of there that need to get out of there and go take care of their, their personal stuff. Um, I then started listening. The, the picture looked like it was pushing north. Um, and I started listening to uh, radio traffic on my phone, uh, scanner uh, scanner app. And they were talking, I could tell where the start point was. Uh, it was basically Highway 93 and Marshall Road. And then they started talking Cherryvale Road. I'm like, all right, sounds like it's pushing north. So I wasn't horribly concerned at that point in time. And I said, all right, I'll come out in a little bit. I got to wrap some stuff up here, but I'll be out of my way in, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. A quick question. So you were sending, you instructed the facility manager to Vista to send people home. Was that so they can come back to be, uh, to have the equipment they need, to have food, et cetera, to be part of a response or? 
No. What, what was your thinking there? Just people who lived out there, if they needed to go evacuate their homes. Um, so that's just kind of one of our standard things. If we ever get a report of a fire in the area, we, if anybody's at work that lives in that area, we, we get them out of there so they can go take care of their personal stuff. Okay. That is a critical point I wanted to draw out because um, that, that is common in some areas and not common in others. And I think people just don't think about it. So taking care of your people so yeah. they can come take care of the incident is absolutely critical. Thank you for highlighting that. Yeah. So um, about maybe 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, she sends me a text, but the smoke's coming right at the hospital. So, all right. So, you know, basically, you know, just simple dynamics of weather, basically where the smoke is coming from. And if it's hitting you, that basically the way the fire is going to move. Um, so I basically said, all right, I'm be on my way out now, grab my backpack, grab my uh, state radio, my 800 megahertz radio, um, walked outside at the hospital at St. Anthony's North and there's ash falling and St. Anthony's North is directly east of a Vista Adventist hospital. Uh, and when I say directly, I mean, you could draw a perfectly horizontal line, you know, curvature of the earth and whatever but perfectly horizontal line between the two of them. And they're about 15 miles away from each other as the crow flies. So having ash fall already there and knowing the fire was still even further west of a Vista, basically we got a good smoke column and it's already dropping ash, you know, 15, 20 miles away. Um, made the 20 minute drive out there in about 15 minutes. To St. To, uh, Anthony? Uh, to a Vista. From St. Anthony. From St. Anthony's, yes. Okay, got it. Sorry. Yep. And um, as I was driving out, um, you know, and I don't know if you can insert pictures. Uh, I can send you pictures if you want to insert pictures somewhere in here. Uh, uh, when uh, I will be posting some of these on YouTube as time goes on. So, yes, yeah, send them over and, and we'll, okay. we'll work those out down the line. Right now we're doing audio. Yeah. Um, so looking at it that way um, and, and just driving pretty much uh, just to get there. Um, made it there in about 15 minutes. And as I walked in, I looked off to the north where there's a neighborhood, you know, dark smoke, couldn't see the houses anymore um, and realized, all right, I might be in for a, uh, a little bit longer of a day today. Um, it uh, got into the hospital at, um, oh, what time did I walk in? Like 12, I want to say 12.30 something, um, 12.30, 12.40, I walked in and went upstairs to the boardroom and they had already opened the command center up a little bit the thing to remember about this this is that week in between christmas and new year when you don't know what day it is and if you're supposed to go to work you don't go to work and people are still kind of you know a little bit on christmas vacation so we did not have a lot of leadership in the hospital um it was our uh, facility director, Natalie, and our uh, director of periop, uh, Calvin, were the two leaders in the hospital at the time. Uh, we have what's called an AOC or an admin on call. Mm -hmm. and they're supposed to be able to respond. Um, they were on the phone, but not close to the hospital. Um, from So one, once I got into the first thing we really started looking at was, what's our census? How many do we have in the hospital? And who can we discharge? Who needs transport and what uh, what kind of transport do we need? Basic life support, advanced life support, or critical care? Obviously, no helicopters are flying, so everything's going to be done by ground if we need to, you know, uh, evacuate the hospital. So 
the staff. So got this is prep. Over. This is preparatory work. You're not ordering an evacuation. You're getting ready. Correct. You're getting yeah, ready started to do that it. Forward process, and even still, so at the time we had shut down the air handlers. The facilities crew had shut down the air handlers, which to do that in a hospital is a pretty drastic thing to do because those uh, everything is about air and pressure in a hospital. So when you shut down those air handlers, the building completely changes and it's difficult to do stuff uh, safely. So once those air handlers are shut down, things start happening. So think about even your IT rooms and how hot those get. Without the air handlers pushing cold air into there, you can start overheating your IT systems, your phones, your internet, your everything data related. So, Where are you operating out of? Uh, you mentioned a command center and a boardroom. Are they the same? Yeah, yeah. Um, the boardroom is was our command center at Avista. Okay. Um, that's how it is a lot of places. You don't really have anything particular set up in a hospital because you just don't use them that much. No, we had it. The utility was a multi-purpose room that had screens on the wall, yeah, Wi-Fi connection, and we had you know signs for the different positions uh, that we could just you know put out and set the room up uh, in in pods. But uh, yeah, we didn't have a dedicated command yeah. center. I don't. I didn't. I didn't expect it would. Um. So. From the time I, so about that time, uh, they got all that information together very quickly. Um, you know, they, I don't know if they had already been thinking about it, but got it together. And ultimately, because of where we were at with um, um, already smoke and encroaching into the hospital, uh, into it itself, and air handler shut down, we made the decision to just discharge patients, patients that we knew we could discharge. Let's just decompress our hospital. So all we have left are patients that, you know, are a little more sick, but we can focus our resources on them. So we basically made some aggressive discharge decisions at that point in time. Um, and it was 51 in the hospital with 21, I want to say if memory serves right, my memory's fading sometime, uh, 21 needing to be, that could be discharged, leaving 30 uh, to be evacuated if necessary. And how uh, many of those were ICU or critical your, Five your of those were of ICU, and three of the ICUs were vented on a on a ventilator. That that was the next question. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, an important thing, and you'll see why that's important in a little bit here. Um, and then uh, I was listening to my scanner app the entire time, and at about twelve fifty five, um, they uh, I could hear command say, "We will be uh, issuing evacuation orders now for everything east of McCaslin." Boulevard or road, whatever it is. Uh, McCaslin is a north-south road that goes through uh, the city of uh, Superior and Louisville, um, part of Louisville at least. And so everything east of that road, north and south of Highway 36. So Highway 36 is that freeway, the Boulder County, the Boulder Corridor there. Yep. Uh, Highway 36, important to recognize, is about an eight-lane divided interstate essentially. It is. It is. Uh, yeah. Big it's, wide it, thing. Yeah. Fast moving highway. Um, so I heard that and that's where Avista is, uh, is right smack in the middle of where they just said they're evacu issuing evacuation orders. Um, right when I arrived at Avista, I called Boulder County PSAP um, uh, 911 and said, hey, we're here. Don't forget about us. Uh, um, and uh, if we need to know anything, try and give us a call. But they were inundated, obviously. Uh, this fire was moving extremely fast. Uh, we were having 100 mile an hour winds, uh, basically hurricane force winds. 
uh, moving through uh, moving through the county. So extremely unpredictable, extreme uh, extreme fire behavior. Uh, the firefighters that I've talked with that were out there fighting it, it just they've never seen anything like it. Uh, and some of these guys have been doing this for a very, very long time. Uh, it actually did jump Highway 36. Again, that eight-lane road, normally an eight-lane concrete road is a pretty good fire break, uh, but it jumped it like it was nothing. Um, so well, I heard that. that winds of that, uh, that magnitude are, are going to do that. Yeah, yeah, it didn't matter. Um, there's really nothing slowing that thing down. Question. Uh, you called the Boulder County PSAP. What about Boulder County OEM? I didn't call them yet. So once I heard that order to evacuate, that's when I started calling more people because okay. I wanted, basically I needed situational awareness. So, you know, actually one of your posts on LinkedIn, you talk about situational awareness. Well, that was right. the thing I needed. And so I called Boulder County PSAP back, didn't get an answer. I uh, called Boulder County OEM, nobody answered. Called Boulder County OEM on my 800 radio, nobody answered. Boulder County Public Health, uh, ESF-8, and nobody answered. So at that point in time, um, not knowing what resources were gonna be available to protect a structure, um, I'll talk about that real quick in a sec, we made the decision to evacuate um, without Everybody. any other situational awareness, yeah. Now, the important thing to remember out of VISTA is it's a big building, really solid type two construction, very fire resistive construction in the middle of a giant parking lot. And the grass we have around it, very short fuels, like two inch, three inch fuels, very short grass, a few trees. The risk of the building burning down wasn't there, at least in my mind. I, I wasn't concerned about the building actually catching on fire. After the fact, we found some stuff that was concerning in that regard. Uh, but at the time, it wasn't a, a thought in my head. The bigger problem we had was smoke throughout the building. And basically, the, the environment inside the hospital was rapidly becoming untenable. And that's basically what led to the the, the uh, need to evacuate. So even if the HVAC was working, the air handling system was working, could you have put it on positive pressure? Not the entire thing. Not the entire thing, right. Yeah. So okay. in the in a hospital, you've got some rooms that are positive, some that are negative. Right. So air handler units are kind of designed to do different things. Okay. So you got a lot going on right now. You're the emergency manager. It sounds like you're the hospital incident commander. I'm assuming you use Hicks, H yeah, you hospital think. incident ICS. But it sounds like you're doing a whole lot by yourself. Did you have? Um, you already discussed limited staffing, anybody helping you do some of these things? Do you have a, a somewhat of a crisis management structure or somebody on the telephone doing these calls for you, radio, et cetera? Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> How'd a feeling? It, uh, so we had the, the two directors in-house. Um, Calvin left because his house was in the eva immediate evacuation area, okay. over Rock Creek area. Um, his house did not uh, was not damaged, which was a good thing, but he did have to go home. Uh, so basically, Natalie and I are the two that are left uh, okay. to do this. And, and this is crisis management. We do what we got to do to get the job done. Exactly. Okay. Um, and I, I, I mentioned this at a conference I was speaking at a, a couple months ago, and I think it was the first time it popped into my head for some reason. But, uh, you know, Natalie and I made the decision to evacuate and we forgot to tell the rest of the hospital. 
uh, that we, we were doing this. Uh, we just kind of looked at each other, got up and walked out of the boardroom and went to start working uh, towards that end. I mean, everyone figured it out pretty quickly, but it's like, just remember to communicate everything really well because uh, probably something we should have told the rest of the house. So uh, how would you have communicated that over a basic uh, internal uh, phone system, a pager system? Overhead, we probably would have overhead announced it, yeah. Okay. Just through our overhead PA system. Um, I mean, we have Everbridge as a mass notification tool, but at that point in time, um, it would just go on overhead. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, at that point, you know, so, I, so let me get the picture right. We're evacuating 30 people at this point, right? Because you discharged. Uh, th yes, 30 people, correct. Okay. Um, and it's interesting because as I've taught stuff in my hospitals and, and talking evacuation, I've always said evacuation itself is fairly straightforward. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the hardest part of that is pulling the trigger on it and doing it. And remarkably that was one of the easiest decisions that was made that day um it, it we just very realized very quickly we can't stay here um so it it, it worked out well um and ultimately it was an easy decision to make now it may not be easy for anybody else going forward in a similar situation but for us it was okay you say it's an easy decision and i think for somebody like you it is but clearly you invoked I'm sure you didn't think of it this way. I'm sure you didn't stop and say, I'm going to critical think this through, but you invoked critical thinking by looking at your options. The first and most important thing you did was you were begging to get situational awareness from any source. You can get it. You were getting situational awareness and then you were developing your own situational awareness from your on on-site experience. And critical thinking is really doing um, a should I, shouldn't I, or a, what happens? What if, you know, you what if something five times, you come up with a decision and people like you should be able to do that uh, almost instantaneously. And it sounds like you did that. So, um, you know, kudos on that. Yeah, that's, it's funny you say that because again, I did a lot of reflecting afterwards and, you know, again, it felt easy in the time, but then afterwards, like, God, was it the right call? Did we do everything we could have? And you know, I, I, Natalie and I had talked about it afterwards and she's like, she's like, I just remember looking at you and you weren't saying anything. I go, I was running through process. I was like, what's next? What's next? What's next? And I ran out of what's Perfect. next. But you and should I, absolutely second guess yourself later. Yeah. You made a command decision and emergency managers, I believe that there's a decision deficit that exists because of, um, the ability to freeze when people are fearful of making a decision because of political ramifications or, uh, uh, you know, potential uh, negative impacts from their upline from from the from the leadership. Um, <clears throat> congratulations on making a call, and you made a call with some critical decision making, uh, critical thinking rather. And it's okay to what if yourself after, yeah. you know, to 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 do because that'll make your next the next thing better. You, you always uh, reflect introspectively. Yes. Um, so yeah, it, uh, we made that decision. And I'll say from the time I walked into the hospital um, till the time we made that decision was 17 minutes. So, you know, I, my teachings after this, I, I, I really looked at emergency management in the hospital world differently 
um, just EM in general, actually. Um, a guy I know um, has done a lot of uh, work with uh, ideas around VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. And then he's added like T2 to, or T2. So volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, uh, threat, and time-based. Yeah, I haven't heard that term in years. I like it. Yeah, VUCA T environments and, yeah. um, you know, really looking at the idea of what that is and that time compression, you know, 17 minutes from trying to get situational awareness to making a decision to evacuate a hospital, something that we just don't do lightly. I mean, that's not a lot of time to actually do a lot of stuff. And um, ultimately, you know, had we had more time, we probably would have been second guessing ourselves maybe a little more. But uh, it worked out. It worked out well. Uh, so let's talk about the the mechanics of the evacuation. I think that's important. Um, yeah, obviously you needed EMS support. Yeah. How did that work? How, how, well, how did you activate it? Sound like you had some calm issues. Yep. And and how did that evacuation work? Uh, you'll anticipate these questions. Were the destinations? pre-selected per an evacuation plan where they where they called on the spot ad hoc all yours so when um when i started writing my after action for this i i started thinking i was going to title it um when processes failed relationships mattered uh because ultimately many of our processes that were in our eop and i'll say this i never pulled the eop i never pulled a single annex um, never did we had no time to do any of that. Um, but the processes that were in there that I had in my head, uh, just from, you know, exercising and doing this stuff over and over again, not a lot of them worked. Um, and we'll, we'll, I'll go through a lot of those here because it really is important. Um, I want to highlight something you said, because it's the quote of the week. When processes fail, relationships matter. The worst yeah. place to exchange business cards is at a command post yes. or at an emergency operations center. When and processes fail, relationships matter. Yep. Uh, you know, and it still sticks in my head. Uh, something I, uh, uh, a keynote speech I listened to in 2002 uh, by one of the guys that was at uh, the Pentagon on 9 11. Um, I think it was a Fairfax fire chief or someone like that. And, you know, the, the guys were coming together and they're like, hey, Bill, hey, Tom, how are you? Hey, we got this problem. You know, and again, it's that same idea. They knew each other. It wasn't an unfriendly environment. They didn't have to, you know, learn each other's quirks. And ultimately, that idea has always stayed with me. So, yeah, it's all about relationships. And in this case, um, August of 2020, so a few months prior to the fire, uh, myself, uh, Michelle Deland, who is the executive director for the North Central Region Healthcare Coalition, fantastic person. She is an absolute rock star in this world. Um, Mark Dockerty, he's an EMS chief with North Metro Fire Rescue. And PJ, Paul Johnson from Mountain View Fire Rescue. Uh, and a couple other people, we got together at St. Anthony's North Hospital to talk about an idea that we were stealing from Las Vegas in the Route 91 shooting. My concern at the hospital was if we have a shooting at the theater across the street, all these trauma victims are going to be running to my hospital at, you know, 11 at night and we're not a trauma center. So how do we get these patients out of my hospital to a trauma center where they need to be? So we're Troy Took, uh, the EMS chief out there in Vegas, created this idea of an EMS liaison. And we were exercising this idea 
where we bring an EMS person into the hospital to help us communicate with that on-scene incident command structure because hospitals don't have a good conduit for that conversation, for that communication to take place. So we had exercised that idea. Um, Marshall fire happens. PJ, Paul Johnson is the South Division commander of the fire. He orders, uh, tells, calls up Mark Doherty to come to a VISTA to do a, get a CAN report, conditions, actions, needs. Mm -hmm. And I'm on the phone with Michelle. So the four of us that had exercised an idea, we're now putting it into practice, actually. That's a very Colorado term. Colorado Springs Fire used it, a CAN report. Yeah. I've, I've not heard it outside of Colorado. Um, what is it? Conditions, conditions actions, and needs. needs. Yep. yep. And I've started to integrate that into some of my hospital stuff as well. Um, I, I think it's a very succinct way to get information, you know, from multiple units in a hospital, ICU, med search, tele, OR, down to your command post and, and start getting a situational awareness of where are we at in the building. I love it. It's a size up. Yeah. Yep. Um, so basically, um, initially I had ordered my, I got a call back from ESF8, uh, Boulder County Public Health. Um, the reason they didn't answer when I called them, I had just changed my cell phone number and I like literally two weeks before and not everybody had my current number. Can't make this <laughs> stuff up, right? <laughs> so Chris Campbell, who's the ESF8 EM guy uh, at Boulder County Public Health, he calls me back after I left a voicemail and I said, Chris, we're evacuating. Um, can I put my resource request in with you? That's where the stuff goes. They've got the statutory authority as part of that health and medical response in the county, right? So I give my resource request to him and it was three critical care, eight ALS and three BLS or something like that was my initial request. Uh, I don't remember for sure what those numbers were. Um, and I told him I'd be on, you know, XX channel on my radio for EMS to uh, contact us. So you asked for eight, give me that again, eight ALS? I think with eight ALS, uh, I want to say three or four BLS and three critical care. I remember it was eight ALS and three critical care. I don't remember the BLS for sure. Okay. Um, so I did that and I kind of thought, okay, it's going to take a while. I know it's going to take a while to get these ambulances here, but what else can we start doing? And I was talking with Michelle, um, I'd called her very early on when I couldn't get a hold of anybody else and told her we're evacuating. I need your help. Um, organizing some stuff and, and she started doing a very good job on the back end. But at some point in time, PJ, again, he was down on the South division. He called up Mark Doherty and said, I need you to go to a Vista. So I walked outside and Mark was pulling up at that point in time. And uh, we started chit chatting and I said, Hey, Mark, we're evacuating. And he's like, Oh, uh, hold on a second. Let's call PJ. Right. We get PJ on the phone. This is out in the ambulance bay in the smoke. Uh, we get PJ on the phone and Mark say, Hey, Chris is going to evacuate. And, uh, PJ's like, no, we no, we don't have the resources to evacuate a hospital. And I'm like, uh, PJ, we're leaving. Um, <laughs> and, uh, there's a lot of other back and forth and, and between Michelle and him. And it was a comical conversation, uh, the way it was told to me, but ultimately what they had said, what Mark had said, and PJ have both said since then, since they knew me, knew my background, they said, hey, Chris is on the ground. He's making the decision. We're going to go ahead and do it. We right. trust him. Again, relationships matter. Absolutely. It, it really didn't uh, It really didn't take a lot of back and forth uh, to get to that right. point. Uh, so the, the transport decision, let's take the, the vent patients. 
and then work in reverse order. How was the decision made where to transport the patients to? Um, that decision was made. Uh, I so Mark uh, Mark took command at Avista. Uh, Mark Docker, EMS chief, he took command at Avista. He became the uh, kind of the transport officer, um, uh, and started working on getting the resources. I was working on destination decisions. So for me in my head, um, it was, I'm sending pretty much all of them to St. Anthony's North Hospital. One, because it's one of my hospitals, I know the capabilities. Um, it's the closest hospital, which played into it because I didn't know what resources we'd be getting and how many. So I wanted to make sure whichever ones I got could come or back to us as fast as possible. So, and, you know, Mark and I talked later after the fact, and he's like, I'm glad you did that because that was my brain too. We need to keep these ambulances coming back here because uh, we just didn't know what we'd be getting for sure. So they were loading, going, dropping, and rotating. Yeah, we had one North Metro medic unit come back three or transport three different times, um, which, uh, which, which was pretty cool. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about some of that. But um, I called up uh, the CNO, the chief nursing officer over at North. I knew she was on site at the hospital. Uh, I texted her. I'm like, hey, Jesse, we're evacuating Avista. What can you take? And she's like, okay. So got back to me real quick. She could take like two NICU babies. Um, I had five NICU babies that needed to go. And they ended up taking all five NICU. So we, we immediately overwhelmed North. Um, and the staff at North did a fantastic job. Um, luckily we had our clinical informatics person there at the hospital and she, they basically took our OB triage area and turned it into a NICU overflow for these extra patients that were coming in. They did it physically in the unit, but also within Epic, our electronic medical record, they had to change it as well. And they did all that very quickly and, and it was a fantastic job. So among the 30 patients, you had NICU, uh, NICU patients. Correct. Yep. Five okay. NICU babies. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we immediately overloaded uh, North with the, the first ambulance going out the door. Um, but again, it, uh, I had several conversations with, uh, with Jesse on the phone. I actually had a NICU doctor yelling at me in the ambulance bay as I'm on the phone with Jesse and, and trying to you know, sort through everything and we made it work. Um, we sent 25 patients to St. Anthony's North and five patients to Longmont United. Uh, up in Longmont, Colorado. So North did take 25. And the important thing to think about for people listening, maybe from a hospital or whatever, the, at the point in time, St. Anthony's North had, I think it was 104 beds. So sending them 25 patients, I mean, that's 25% of their capacity. The other thing to remember is at this point in time, we're in the middle of a COVID surge actually. So hospitals really didn't have a lot of free space. And, you know, giving a hospital 25% of their capacity in an hour and a half uh, is pretty impressive. Okay, so let's start looking at, uh, at wrap up. Um, what a great discussion, Chris, I'm, I'm glad you brought it to the to the podcast. I think there's a lot of great lessons learned here for the folks. Let's talk about your lessons learned. What are your like top three or four takeaways? So the biggest one 
again, one of those things where those, the other thing I've learned from this is assumptions, um, assumptions lead to expectations and expectations lead to a lack of attention to detail. And we had a lot of assumptions built into our plans and those assumptions ultimately failed. So one of those assumptions was we're going to keep patients that we evacuate in the system. So within Centura or within UC Health or whatever the system is for continuity of care and data management purposes. Ultimately, that failed pretty horrifically because in order to do that, you have to, in the EMR, you have to, the physician has to do a discharge and a readmit process. And right. then the nurse has to physically discharge the patient. We didn't have anybody to do that. So these patients went to St. Anthony's North with no medical records. And we had patients on vents, on drips, and ultimately they were almost treated like just coming into the ED and treated like an ED patient because they had to do an assessment and figure out where they were at with these people. Right, right. I was thinking that they, they had to be triaged. There was, they had no choice barring the, the info. Yeah, it was. Fast that, forward that, a couple of years, could the, could, could the records be transferred electronically? Ultimately, you know, we've reached out to Epic and had a lot of the same findings, believe it or not, came out of California fires as well uh, with Epic as well. Um, and it wasn't on their roadmap as of last year to look at this. We were recommending um, basically if you've got to evacuate, they've already got a disaster feature built into Epic. Add this feature as part of that. Just take your census and put it into a holding pond, essentially. And okay. And Epic is a data management System. electronic medical record so yeah nurse over there typing on the computer she's typing into epic so people in the uh, medical industry know what that is yeah okay yeah. got it um you know basically take your census and put them into a holding area and then you can basically pull them out and put them into your hospital it's not 100 up to what is required by licensure but we're evacuating a hospital under pretty dire circumstances i think we'll get a pass on doing the right thing here um, right. as long as life safety is what we're looking at. Um, so ultimately we hope they can start pushing that idea. Um, the resource request process, uh, that idea that EMS liaison that Mark Doherty, uh, filled in, we now call that a hospital resource officer. It's been a formalized position within the North central region here in Denver metro area and EMS agencies are on board with it. They truly recognize that need after the uh, after this fire and what Mark could give me in the hospital and how he supported that evacuation. Um, ultimately, what he did was he went through his dispatch. Basically, he did decentralized command. Uh, he created his own command structure, went through his dispatch, ordered the EMS resources. He also was the one initially incident commander fighting the fire in the neighborhood just north of the hospital. But isn't that what we're supposed to do? We are describing. Yes. That's not a bad thing. That no. is exactly what this podcast is about: is learning how we create, uh, become creative, and imaginative, and we do things that are semi within the confines of of structure or creating ad hoc structures where it's needed to get something done. And it sounds like that's what you guys did, Mark, in particular. Yeah, he, he, uh, he did that. Um, Mike Chard, the uh, Boulder OEM, like he and I yeah. had conversations and, yeah. and I know Mike, I'm like, Mike, I called you twice. He's like, <laughs> you know, he's a funny dude. If anybody knows Mike out there, uh, he basically said, you know, I'm not Tommy Lee Jones chasing volcanoes here. 
Uh, <laughs> oh, and and I I don't know Mike well, but I know him from from the from the from the profession from the community out in Colorado. Yeah. But I could see him saying it. <laughs> yeah, and and his point, and it's a very well taken point, is it takes us three hours to get spooled up, you know, in an emergency operations center. We're not full time doing this stuff. And again, it was that week when right. nobody was there. He was short staffed, um, and you know, ultimately, it, what I took from that was. If we're part of a big incident, like a wildfire, a tornado, something along those lines, we might be on our own throughout the first three hours. Uh, we may not get, and that's where that HRO position, getting tied into incident command rather than emergency management, those first three hours, we almost need to be part of the incident management structure, not an emergency management structure. Probably a whole separate two-hour discussion on why do they even have to be different? Yeah, emergency yep. management and incident management. I, I I reject that on its face and believe that we're all part of one big global emergency management incident management infrastructure. But yeah, that's definitely another discussion, and yeah, we and may it, do that. We may do that at some point down the line. Pull it was ultimately because like our processes were all geared toward emergency management, and none of our processes were really geared towards incident management. So again, all those processes that weren't working right, go to ESF eight mm -hmm. for your resources when we should be going to incident command for resources in some way, shape or form. Uh, kind of same thing with situational awareness. EOC is not spooled up, ESFA is not spooled up. They're not, they're not gathering information so they can't push anything out. I don't know. I've, you know, I've been around long enough to know that the incident commander is fighting an active wildfire uh or in, in you know in an urban environment an active structure fire they need to know that people have certain boxes checked within the confines of of, of a command structure yeah so but you know that's just me uh, uh you know a bit of a contrarian but it's but not in a bad way you know just thinking that we can do better oh yeah by, by pulling things together let me let me see if i could start summarizing a few things oh question how did everybody do how did the patients do and how did you guys do so um, we had one patient that, um, you know, got to St. Anthony's North and blood pressure wasn't great. Um, again, an adult? an adult patient, it was um, probably one of the other lessons learned. We talk about triaging our patients. We didn't do a good job of triaging our staff. Um, so luckily, North Metro Fire and Thornton Fire, the first two EMS agencies that showed up to transport, they both had transport ventilators. Um, I didn't know that going in, uh, but they did. So they could take our vented patients very easily. That's incredible. That's a great resource. Yeah. And it's good, again, knowing that stuff. Um, we never did get a single critical care resource. Uh, it was all just EMS fire-based essentially. Okay. Um, but we sent nurses on those ambulances with them and we should have held them back for patients who were on a drip that EMS can't take. Uh, due to licensure and certification reasons. Well, you mean BLS units? ALS units should be ALS able to take them. So some, like, this patient was on, uh, I want to say a levofed drip, and EMS just doesn't do levofed. No, uh, EMS doesn't do levofed. Yep. Yeah, so um, I don't know. We had to DC that drip. Now, we could have left it running, and would anybody have cared? I mean, we could have done it and been okay, but we DC'd it discontinued it and she got to St. Anthony's North with a pretty low pressure. She ended I think, up I think that's another discussion for another podcast, disaster yeah. medicine. Uh, I, I don't know. I, 
I, I don't know. I just I think I just think could have been something different there. But, overcome. Yeah. All right. Um, wow, what a great discussion. What a what a what a fantastic incident to discuss. And uh, I know this this had had uh, had affected you, and, and I really appreciate you uh, willing willing to discuss it. Some key takeaways I found through the discussion. Uh, first and foremost was you care for the employees and I want to you know that's the message get if you have a a, a notice event meaning you know an event is coming as opposed to a sudden onset no notice event make sure your people have an opportunity to take care of their families take care of their uh, their evacuations get them into a safe place so when they come back to work their head is clear and they know that they're at while their property may not be secure at least uh their their family is Hospitals need an emergency management program. Um, look to your standards like JACO, NFPA, possibly. Um, was there one other that you mentioned? CMS. Uh, CMS. Ultimately, yeah, ultimately, yeah. Joint Commission. CMS creates the standards. Joint Commission, you know, uh, per perfect. Those standards, basically uses them, and they can go. Joint Commission can go kind of above CMS, but uh, everything has to be at least CMS. Assumption failed. Uh, I think I think that's a good point because we we write assumptions into plans, and it's probably not good enough. I think what I'm hearing you say is that we need to harden up our assumptions and at least test those assumptions to see what the, what what the reality is. Um, God, I love this quote of the week: "When processes fail, relationships matter." That that's the mic drop moment for this particular episode. That's a great one. Uh, I like the hospital resource officer, not unlike a resource unit leader in the ICS uh, system. I like that a lot. And trying to maybe marry up emergency management with ICS structure. I struggle with that, but it's a takeaway that uh, I think nonetheless, it, it, it's worth it's worth talking about. Um, yeah. You know, and the, probably the one of the last things I, I heard a lot afterwards was uh, the outcome was good. And I, I struggled with that a lot. Um, to me, it's a flawed metric. Uh, I don't think emergency managers, I don't think we get to judge success by if the outcome was good. I mean, the outcome was good, but we got lucky in a lot of, uh, a lot of aspects. Um, it, uh, you know, the fact that, yeah, the Thornton and North Metro units had transport ventilators that Mark PJ, yeah, some of this you could say was exercising and doing what we should be doing as emergency managers, but we still had some luck kind of fall into our lap and we, we got to manage that luck out of it and replace it with solid process. Well, so, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw some sunshine your way because I, I, I think you're one of those guys that would never say he's a hero. I'm not a hero. It's what I do. This is what you do. Nonetheless, what you, the structure you put in place and some of the decisions you made led to lives being saved and um, efficiencies in an emergency response. So kudos to you and, and, and the team at the hospital. And thank you for, for sharing that story. I appreciate it, man. Uh, I want to thank Chris for joining us and sharing that really incredible story uh, here on five minutes to chaos. Um, five minutes to chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us and like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert when an episode drops. We're on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. I welcome your comments and questions, which can be submitted in the comment area on your favorite podcast platform, or a real easy way to find me is on Twitter or LinkedIn. 
please include your email address so we can correspond appropriately. And until next time, embrace the chaos. That brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.